A young woman living with her father, her sisters and her unruly brother on the wilds of the Yorkshire moors in the 19th century. She's trying to resolve her own creative impulses in the face of the challenges that faced all women of that era, most especially the ones who sought to found their own artistic voice. She is Emily Bronte and in a new feature film starring Emma Mackey, the kindling of what will become Wuthering Heights is taking shape film is the brainchild of the Australian actor Frances O'Connor, who is of course no stranger to costume drama herself having taken leading roles in adaptations of Mansfield Park and Madame Bovary. But with Emily her debut as a writer and director O'Connor is entirely behind the camera. So little detail is known about the life of Emily Bronte she's sometimes called the Sphinx of English literature. And so with room to manoeuvre, Frances O'Connor has created a speculative fiction around Emily and a person who exists in real life and who knew the Bronte as well. His name was William Waitman. Recently I spoke to Frances O'Connor about the film and I began by asking her about her own interest in Emily Bronte and whether even before writing the film the novelist had always been someone Frances was interested in. Yeah, I think because, um, I mean, I, I remember reading Wuthering Heights as a 15-year-old and it really making an impression on me, just the world of it and the emotion in the book kind of really spoke to me. And then, you know, just reading her poetry, I always felt like you can feel who she she actually is underneath, the behind the poetry. So um, and she's always just really fascinated me as a person and I always feel like her voice out of all the sisters, I mean, they're all incredible women, but for, for some reason, I feel like who she is really speaks to me. I mean, I'm an introvert, so maybe that's why. Yeah. And, and she is that, and certainly as played by Emma Mackey, we get this sense of a very private person. It's very difficult, I would have guessed, when you went about trying to write her and write the, the inner life of Emily Bronte. Very difficult to get there without using the works themselves because there's, there's very little. Yeah, although actually it's kind of like doing detective work. If you actually read everything, there is actually quite a bit of information to piece together to kind of form a picture for who she was. Little things that people say, like um, there's a little story about when she went to Bradford with Charlotte and Ellen Nussie to go shopping for cloth to make a dress. And she chose a lightning bolt pattern. And everybody was kind of horrified that she wanted to make a dress of it. And I just thought, oh, okay, so there's something. And um, I told that story to the costume designer and he said, oh, let's make a dress for her with, with a lightning bolt pattern. So little things like that that help us, that kind of indicate who she was. And there's things like that all, all the way through the research that kind of helped kind of form a picture of who she, who she is in the film. But that, that very much to me sounds like a very, a very much an actor's approach. And obviously lots of people will know you as an actor, you know, to see that, that detail in the lightning bolt. How much do you think, you know, your own experience as an actor really helped you in both the writing and the directing of this film? I feel like writing is like acting, but you're playing all the parts and you have to kind of be in the, the perspective of like Bramwell and how he feels. And then on the other side, how Emily feels and how do they interact. So being an actor and understanding psychology and understanding character really helped me write it. Definitely. Yeah. And, and did it help you on set? Would you say? Yeah, definitely. I think, cause I think I deeply understand what it's like to be in the middle of that kind of space when you're trying to find a moment and find the truth of it and just how difficult it is. So I think for me, when an act, when a director is empathetic to what I'm trying to do, it really helped. So that was kind of my approach. 
we were you were talking about you know that there are lots of little details out there regarding Emily. How careful did you have to be about the details that are given to us by Charlotte? Because there's a quite definite, a very clear sibling rivalry in your version of of the tale. I know, and I think you know if you're if you're a Charlotte Bronte fan predominantly, that might upset you. But I feel like there really was a, a power dynamic between the two of them that was very. I mean, they loved each other fiercely, I think, in real life. And I think that's the thing about this is a movie. I'm not doing a documentary on the Brontes and I'm doing a, a film. So and it's it's kind of a dream in a way. And these are these are we're asking the, the Brontes to play certain characters. It's based on who they are, but it's its own thing. But um, but I do think there was a power dynamic between between the two of them. And I think for Charlotte, she she did feel like that she had to be the responsible one and that she was the link to the real world and the imaginary world that Emily lived in and um, and that she did feel the pressure to be the one who's like, we need to make some money to kind of support ourselves because none of us are married. And, um, you know, I think we forget that they were just people, you know, trying to, to get by. And I think, I mean, I think what's interesting about what I do with Charlotte is the first, when they sat down to write their first books, Emily wrote Wuthering Heights, Anne wrote Agnes Grey, and Charlotte wrote The Professor. I mean, have you ever read The Professor? <laughs> no. no, I mean, a lot of people haven't read it because it's really, she wasn't really writing from her, her true self yet and her, her real sense of power. She, sat, she read Wuthering Heights, she, she wrote Agnes Grey. In the next book, she sat down and she wrote Jane Eyre within a year. She actually beat her sisters to publishing it. And I just think that's interesting. And I feel like those, there's not one book without the other. So I feel like, I honestly feel that Emily did help Charlotte kind of come back to her own creative voice. Look, it does like the rain. The feel of it, the sound of it, the smell of it. From now on, we shall call her Miss Celia Amelia. I'm a fool. No, you're not. But I'd rather be a fool than not live at all. You're an embarrassment to us. Do you know what they call you in the village? Stop it, Charlotte. No. They call you the strange one. And you are. Mother would be ashamed to see who you've become. Every time I come home, I see more and more what you are becoming. I won't let you drag me down, I won't! The moment that Emma Mackey walked into audition and auditioned as Emily, I would have thought must have been a, a particularly special one. I mean, I, I now can't see, uh, I can't think Emily Bronte without seeing Emma Mackey's face in front of me. I know, and I think that's such a great compliment to what she does. You can't imagine anyone else in the role. And I, I felt like when she walked into the room in red, and I remember Fiona Weir said to me, um, you should see Emma Mackey. And I was like, from sex education? And she, she said, yeah, she's phenomenal. And I hadn't watched the show, but I remember she, she walked into the room and did the first scene. And I remember just looking over to Fiona Weir, our casting director, and we were both just kind of, flawed like she she was already kind of in it and i really feel like she she also loves emily like i do and i really yeah. felt like she had something to say about this role and i think that's when you get something a bit magical when the part really speaks to the actor and and you know emily uh, uh, emma as emily brings for me a very contemporary feel to the piece was that part of your intention in the writing and in the direction of the film as well yeah, because I think, you know, often in these period dramas, people start acting with posh voices and kind of holding themselves and everyone's like, get away from the actor, don't touch their costume. And that gets translated into acting. So I feel like 
um, we all wanted it to be feel very relaxed and very natural. And I believe that people back then, they were exactly the same as they are now. People were lazy, people were anxious, people were competitive, like we're all just the same, nothing's different. So and I felt it was important to show these people the Brontes as just real people, you know, good and good and bad. And, I, you know, we all have different aspects to us. Yeah. Uh, of course, probably the, the biggest element of invention within everything that you do in the film, because I think you've said, uh, Francis, that it's it's part uh, the Brontes uh, and it's part your invention, it's part Emily's life and it's part your invention. But the big invention here is William Whitman, as played by Oliver Jackson Cohn. He He's the kind of the love interest, the, the, the new vicar that comes to town and woos everybody with the speech about rain and how brilliant the rain is, which in Yorkshire is maybe not a bad speech to make yeah, at all. Exactly. <laughs> Although I like when they um, finally do get in the rain, he doesn't cope very well with it at all. Yeah, they all run through it and, and, and enjoy it. But of course, he's got the wrong person tangled to a tree and he's trying to be the gentleman <laughs> and all of that. There's a, people who see the film will understand the specifics of that reference to, to the moment in the rain. But um, that character of William Whitman, was there some kind of semblance in... in I mean, there was a bank? period of time... There was a period in time where it was Emily Bramwell and... Waitman kicking around the parsonage and Anne and Charlotte were away govern kind of coming back in and out of the house with uh, either uh, working as a teacher or governor you know being in a governess and I I was so and in my mind I always felt like Waitman's a little bit like Edgar and Bramble's always a little bit like Heathcliff in terms of their energy so I thought that well, what happened and I you know I don't think she had an affair but I, I wanted to give her that in a way and I wanted mm. to give the audience that as a way of kind of part of the main theme of like exploring how do you become an authentic person? How do you get out and live life if you find that difficult? And, um, you know, so she kind of takes all these risks and one of the risks she takes is is being in relationship with someone um, and, you know, which goes very badly for her. But from that, she, you know, she writes her opus. This is an important, Miss Bunday. It. It's the sea. The sea? Yeah. But of its sea creatures and deep oceans. And why would you want to leave the sea? Is that what the sea sounds like? Yeah. It's beautiful. For me, I feel like she she was always going to write that book. Mm. Like, I kind of give the audience that, Emily Bronte's secret ingredient, and then I say, actually, she was always going to write that. The, the, you know, the question from the start of the film is, how did, how did you write Wuthering Heights? And she says, I put my pen to paper. And that is how she wrote it, because she's an amazing person, and she is an authentic voice. So, And that Wuthering Heights aspect, as you bring there with the Branwell and, and Waitman and the, the Edgar and, and, and uh, Heathcliff, parallels hmm. how much did Wuthering Heights feed into what you know kind of there's a side of this story that almost reflects yeah. Wuthering Heights. There's lots of window imagery in it and of course the window was so important in, in Wuthering Heights and people knocking at the window lots of ghostliness about it uh, as well which is a huge part of Wuthering Heights how conscious were you of feeding that aspect of the book into your script yeah I wanted it to be a, a world in where that was a very kind of a uh, strong element to it. So if you've read Wuthering Heights, 
and you get to the scene where they run and they're looking in the window and that you kind of you're the what you like you know what that is a reference to but also I feel like thematically it it it, it fit in very well too about kind of being true to yourself and staying true to your own kind of inherent wild nature um and um and yeah I just I just used it as because you know there's this kind of gothic atmosphere in the whole of Wuthering Heights and and I wanted that to be in this film as well but kind of connect it to Emily's emotion and her her creative power yeah and the, the, obviously yeah. the moors give you a big part of it the moors are all well, the atmosphere as well of the moors and yeah sorry the, the, what was the, that the moors are almost a character in themselves in the film aren't they yeah and uh that felt was very important for me to shoot in the real yorkshire um we, we shot it about an hour out of howarth because it was just that that if you go a little bit further north it's much wilder and kind of just so beautiful so I, I wanted to kind of capture that as like you say with the wind and the rain and the moors and i mean that's kind of fun was it after you um was it as, as long ago was after you shot mansfield park that that you went to visit the moors or was there a period when you went to visit the moors when was that no that's true like the first time i went i mean i didn't have any ambition to write at that stage i was just mm. like a young actress kind of doing my first international film but the director got sick on week eight of a 10-week shoot so we had to stop filming for two weeks so i thought oh i'm gonna go up to howarth and have a look because i was such a bronte geek and our, um, the day that I arrived, it was there was mist everywhere, so it felt very kind of picture perfect. And I remember walking up that high street, and there was the, the parsonage, and you kind of walked in, and it was like they'd just left. You know, the way they run that parsonage is so personal. You know, there's so much love for the Brontes there. So it was, yeah, it was very evocative. Yeah. Did you make Did you make your way? Uh, probably not in the space of a week off or two weeks off shooting. You didn't make your way over to Ireland and and Banbridge and the Bronte <laughs> connection. I did a great film in in Dublin actually called About Adam, wow. and I had so much fun on that. Uh, yeah. But it, obviously, you reflected that Irishness in the casting of Adrian Dunbar as as. Yeah. Well, he was a Northern Irishman, Patrick Bronte. So he it was just. And you know what? Adrian kind of looks like the real Patrick Bronte too. So um, we were just so pleased that he could come and be, come and play with us up there. We had we had so much fun and he's so good in that part too, I think. He plays yeah. a really great line on it. Many a person would say that 20 years ago he would have looked like a Heathcliff as well. Probably would have. <laughs> yeah. um, finally, obviously the first foray into writing and, and directing here for you, Francis. Are you bitten by that bug? Yeah, I really am, actually. It's like, it, it's just so fun to be creative in so many different ways. Whereas when, when you're acting, it's really kind of coming through you, the character, and you're working with other actors and the director. But it, this just felt very expansive. And to actually tell your own stories, really, it's, I, I feel like it's pretty addictive. More to come, it would seem then, from Frances O'Connor speaking to be there about her film Emily, which opens in cinemas nationwide this weekend. We'll be reviewing it on Thursday night's programme. Recently retired from his position as the founder of Globe Education at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in Southwark, Patrick Spottiswood will deliver the Dr Tom Walsh lecture on Shakespeare's Rough Magic at this year's Wexford Festival Opera. Delighted to have Patrick Spottiswood join us on the programme this evening. And before we get into the specifics of the lecture, Patrick, I, I, I would love you to bring me and bring us all back to 1984. You took a year out from your studies to work on a project 
to reconstruct Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Now, anybody who's been there will know what a project that was and what the outcome, uh, how brilliant it was as well. What was it uh, about that project back in 1984 that fired your interest so much? Well, I have to say it was considered a madcap idea for me to join the organisation, rather like Tom Walsh experienced, you know, looks of strange madness when he suggested having a festival in Wexford. No one thought it would work. But what what I found magical about the idea of a globe was to rebuild the theatre where Shakespeare, for which Shakespeare conceived many of his great plays, you know, a particular actor-audience dynamic, uh, a particular way that crowds gathered around the stage and the theatre and that's what really excited me that we'd, we'd been playing Shakespeare indoors with sophisticated scenery and sophisticated lighting but let's get back to the raw boards you know and the, the means of storytelling and the, the gathering of a community around the stage uh, so yeah that's what fired my imagination I didn't think it was going to take another 13 years <laughs> before it opened but uh, I worked with a Tom Walsh I worked with yeah. uh, Sam on uh, who was an extraordinary man. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate uh, to join the Globe when I did and to work with him for nine years. Yeah, American actor Sam Wanamaker, of course, who was very much at the heart of it, and his daughter Zoe Wanamaker, um, yeah. uh, subsequent to, to his being there as well. But interesting that you use that term raw boards uh, there, Patrick, because that in some ways is what you're looking at in this lecture of yours when you talk about Shakespeare's rough Magic, you're, you are talking about, a, well, I'm presuming you're talking about a kind of a roughness, a kind of a bawdiness, a kind of a rawness that is there in, in Shakespeare, in the language and in the, the, the plays themselves. Yes, I think, you know, we perceive Shakespeare now uh, as high culture, uh, culture with a capital K. Um, and we, <laughs> we, you know, and we, we're nervous of him. He's become a kind of statue. And I think we forget that when he was writing, uh, both the theatre was not a respected art form, but also what I'm going to be talking about is that English was not a respected language. I mean, now English is a universal language, right? Mm. And uh, But in Shakespeare's day, no one beyond Dover would have given, you know, there were, no one given the time of day to, to, to speak or understand English. English was just not on the map. And so not only our language wasn't being spoken, but also our literature wasn't being exported in English, right? So, so I'm interested in that, and I'm interested in the French, this opera that uh, Wexford are doing wonderfully, La Tempesta. It has an Italian name, but it actually was written by a French composer and a French librettist. You know, how did the French perceive Shakespeare? Uh, uh, you know, how was he regarded? And they regarded him basically as an uncouth amateur, <laughs> which is, you know, when you're sitting doing your exams at GCSE or A-level, why are we working with an uncouth amateur? But but that's uh, how, how he was regarded by so many people. And yet they agreed and noticed that he had these flashes, these sparks mm. of genius, these sparks of genius. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there was a real mix, there was a real ambivalence towards Shakespeare and his work. Yeah, and I guess that that's part of it. Um, um, part of the, in some ways, the problem with Shakespeare for a, a contemporary audience, because when we, when we think of the Globe Theatre again and we think of the groundlings, these yeah. were the people who stood, who couldn't afford to be getting the swanky seats up in the balconies <laughs> to um, flirt across, ignoring the play, to flirt across with somebody on the far side. But it was more, it was more about that yeah. than it was about watching what yeah. was on the stage. The groundlings were, were down below. 
watching those body scenes, watching the, the, the grave digger in Hamlet or whatever it might have been, those scenes which which really used the language of the street, the language uh, you know, of the gutter, some would say. Yes. And so yes. many of those references then, they're kind of lost on us. A slang that if we heard it in modern parlance, we might know exactly what it means. But in Shakespeare's language, we kind of go, why is he speaking in that peculiar way? Why is he using those odd words? Yes, that's true. I, I, I think, you know, an actor can carry it. Uh, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, American humour that I don't actually understand word for word, but intonation, speed, mm. method of delivery, you know, I'm with them. But you're right, you know, the, uh, again, the French regarded, couldn't understand why Shakespeare was writing the language of a stable rather than the language of a theatre. You know, it wasn't nearly aristocratic mm. enough. It was too street. It was too gutter. Uh, it lacked decorum. Uh, it lacked good taste. And uh, quite a lot of the French co- critics, um, even though they, they, they admired Shakespeare, really hated puns and wordplay. You know, you time and time again, oh, those really wretchedly tedious puns the English love. And mm. we do. <laughs> and Shakespeare's full of them. And quite bawdy ones too, which, of course, again, the French couldn't cope with yeah. uh, in their tragedy. You couldn't have a bawdy joke in a tragedy. Oh, it's outrageous. But, of course, Shakespeare rather reveled in them. Yeah, because that was that was to make sure the grounding stayed and, <laughs> and watched yeah. the play rather than left during the five acts. But you, yeah, you, you, and, yeah. Sorry, carry on. You've spoken about the French attitude towards Shakespeare, but there was a kind of both an Anglo, an Anglophobia and an Anglomania. The, yeah. the two things were there. There were those in France who thought he was the bee's knees, to probably yeah. use, I'm sure, what is a Shakespearean phrase. <laughs> yeah. No, there was an Anglomania. There was an Ang- there was, and. I think, you know, okay, one of the people I'll be talking about is Voltaire, who was the first great champion in the 18th century of Shakespeare in France and was actually quite a fine translator in his own way of of, of Shakespeare. But when he got older, he saw Shakespeare taking over and he saw Shakespeare as a threat who was going to topple the great Racine and Corneille off their pedestals. And he suddenly got very worried about Shakespeare mania. And even in the late, in the following century, you know, a great the great artist, De La Croix, you know, both admired Shakespeare, but then had that ambivalent, sort of slightly patronising view of his writing. And oftentimes they blame the audience, you know, they blame that groundling audience as bringing the quality of the art down. Even English critics in the early 20th century, I have to say, even some of the theatre critics, our respected theatre critics who came to the Globe in the first couple of years, complained about the groundlings. Somehow they were besmirching the quality of this cultural experience. But I would suggest that the, the groundlings were the, are the soul uh, of, of the work. So there was this idea that how dare these people come and stand in the theatre and pay a lot less than we paid for our wonderful covered seats up here in the balconies. Was that there even in the 1990s when, when the yes. Globe first opened? I won't name names. but um, <laughs> Please don't. But, <laughs> but yeah, that, I mean, some of the criticisms we have were, were, were specious. And, but there, there was this feeling, you know, because... Theatre critics have been used to sitting in very comfortable seats, in the best seats in the house with a, with a really great view, in absolute quiet reverence. And suddenly there's a crowd uh, in between them and the stage uh, who are enjoying it, heaven help us, who are emoting 
goodness me, actually laughing or ooing or ahhing, you know, and actually getting involved in the action. And that was quite a shock for, for critics in the late 1990s. I think they've got used to it now. Um, but there was this feeling that, I, I mean, people said, what have you discovered? I think one of the great things the Globe has discovered is an audience. Yeah, They've actually uncovered that audience. They've, they've put them in the same light mm. as uh, the actors on the stage. And it, they brought back a community standing around that stage. That to me is one of the most magical things, standing in the yard with five, 600 other people. You're part of a community, you can see each other. When you stand, you, you respond differently, you relax. Uh, yeah, I, I, but I, that was quite a lot for those people yeah. who were interested in Royal Shakespeare, you know, in that kind of indoor, very heady Shakespeare. Um, so, but I, I think people have come around. I hope mm. they've no, 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 no covering your um, tracks here because you're speaking on an Irish radio station and because you're coming no. to Wexford Festival Opera. What do you make of a theory that I've often heard expanded that, in fact, Shakespeare's language as spoken in the time of Shakespeare, that probably if you were to look for something similar today, you would go for something like perhaps even a southeastern Irish, a, a Wexford accent or a western, a west of Ireland accent, I've heard be, being suggested as well, that there's something in the way that we speak English, possibly got to do with historically when English came here, uh, yeah. came to this country, but there's something in the way that the Irish speak English that in fact suits the language of Shakespeare. I couldn't possibly disagree with you, could I? No, uh, <laughs> no. I mean, I've heard very much about, you know, Virginia, that there's a sort of a village in Virginia which is closest to Shakespeare. I know, certainly Shakespeare did not sound like me, right? Mm. And we have done experiments at the Globe using... Uh, original pronunciation. The great expert on this is the great David Crystal. And he worked with our actors on Romeo and Juliet, I remember particularly, uh, to, to take the same production that they were, had put on and to put it into OP, original pronunciation. And so love became love. Yeah. Mm. And it, it knocked, I think, 15 minutes off the running time because there's a lot of love in Romeo and Juliet, but love takes a lot longer than love. So... Uh, <laughs> Apparently, uh, maybe we should keep to love if it lasts longer. But but no, that that, it, the, that was a really interesting experiment. Different puns, plays on words. You know that they come through when you when you hear Shakespeare spoken in original pronunciation. Whether it's whether I'm going to hear uh, a little bit of Shakespeare in Wexford, I don't know. I don't. I'm not an expert enough on languages. Yeah. But what we will have at Wexford, which I'm, is that. I love that advert that you played. I mean, it is a magical experience. I've only been to Wexford once before. And I have to say that I'm an opera philistine. Opera's not my art form. But when you go to op uh, Wexford, of course, no one knows the opera. They're, it's so wonderful that they're putting on operas that no one knows. Yes, that are, that you're, you're all in the same boat. You're all sitting in the same with the same lack of knowledge. So you, you don't feel, you know, beneath anybody else. You're just, you're just, oh yeah, we're all discovering this together. And that's one of the very exciting things about Wexford. Well, listen, lovely to have spoken with you this evening, Patrick, and uh, interesting to hear what you have to say, uh, I'm sure, at that lecture, Shakespeare's Rough Magic. Patrick Spottiswood delivering that Dr. Tom Walsh lecture at this year's Wexford Festival. Opera. Thanks for being with us this evening, Patrick. And uh, Patrick will deliver the lecture, uh, Shakespeare's Rough Magic, on October October the 27th and La Tempesta which is adapted uh, from Fromental Halevé and Eugene Scribe directed adapted by them rather from the Shakespeare play for the Wexford Festival Opera by Robert Catalano and conducted by Francesco Cilufo will be performed at the festival October the 21st the 24th the 29th and again 
on November the 3rd. When Jan Morris died in 2020, she was considered one of Britain's best-loved writers, the author of Venice, Pax Britannica, at Conundrum, and more than 50 other books. Her work was known for its observational genius, its lyricism and its humour, and earned her a dedicated readership around the world. Her life was no less fascinating than her work. Born in 1926, she spent her childhood and formative years in Oxford and later military service took her to Italy and the Middle East before embarking on a career as an internationally fated foreign correspondent. From being the only journalist to join the first ascent of Mount Everest in 1953 to covering the trial of Adolf Eichmann, Eichmann, Morris's reportage spanned many of the 20th century's defining moments. However, public success masked a private dilemma that was only resolved when she transitioned genders in the late 1960s, becoming renowned as a transgender pioneer. Now, journalist, writer and broadcaster Paul Clements has produced a striking biography of Jan Morris, Life from Both Sides, which brings together the many strands of Morris's rich and at times paradoxical life. Delighted to have Paul Clements join us this evening from Belfast. Uh, Jan Morris was not a fan of the idea of a biography, um, Paul. So um, how did you square that one in your head? Because you and she were pals. Uh, That's correct, Sean. She uh, did not want a biography written in her lifetime. She was uh, vehemently opposed to the idea of it. Um, Four or five people had asked her about it. I broached the subject once about maybe 20 years ago. I was doing a long interview with her at her home in North Wales. And uh, this was really about the books that she read in in her library. It wasn't the books she'd written, the books that that influenced her, so to speak. And Mm. there were quite a lot of biographies. And I touched on the subject of um, writing one about herself, but she wasn't interested and said, uh, enough has been written about me uh, and it's all in my books anyway. And they can say whatever they like about me after I've gone. (laughs) There you go. So you waited. (laughs) And and now now you're giving it. But I, I think, would it be fair to say that what you, what you, what you're really interested in here as much as anything else is her writing and how the writing is sometimes lost in the midst of the uh, transition and the transition and the gender story that is so much a part of her life well that's very true um I wanted to write a literary biography. I had actually done two small books about Chan. Um, 25 years ago, I went to Oxford for four months on a fellowship to study her writing and um, got a lot of material for a small book in a series called The, the Writers of Wales. And then in 2005, I edited a Feshrift, that is a book of tributes to her for her 80th birthday. And it was her writing that fascinated me because that's what I started reading. Probably, I started reading her books uh, in the 1980, early 1980s. Um, and I just loved the lyrical, elegiac side, the, the exuberant and sometimes whimsical side to her. And you could learn things from her books. There were a lot of quirky tidbits of information. And at the end of reading a book, you had a feel-good factor. Because to me, she was divinely gifted as a writer. And uh, there was a great side of cheerfulness to her writing, if you were feeling a bit depressed or low, she brightened up your day really. And and her books are addictively strange because each one is different. It wasn't just travel, and she's known as a traveller, and she didn't like the term travel writer, but uh, you never quite knew what to expect because they would slide around different periods of time and different genres, and she wrote a vast quantity, uh, nearly 60 books. Paul Clements, um, I was speaking to you, and we were talking, Paul, about Jan Morris, who died in 2020, um, author of Venice, Pax Britannica, 
uh, conundrum and as you were telling me beforehand 50 to 60 other books at which defy categorization you certainly there may be they may all be by Jan Morris but they're not of one genre they're not of one type <laughs> I suppose one of the big breakthroughs for her was 1953 and as she became known Morris of Everest uh, her involvement in that famous um, first um, uh, uh, first climbing to the summit of of Everest of Everest yeah, well, that was um, she was. Um, John was working for the Times, and the uh, the Times had the um, rights, copyright to the dispatches, and she was selected to go mainly because um, no one else in the Times would have been uh, able to go because they were all portly wine drinkers, and uh, she was um, just about 25, 26 years of age. So she went off in the expedition, having never climbed a mountain before in her life, and made it up, you know, quite high up the mountain. But she got the news back that. Uh, Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay had reached the summit um, at the end of May 1953. She got the news back to London um, in a coded message by using a Sherpa um, to, to get her um, message back to from the, the uh, radio base to Kathmandu and then back to London. Um, and this was uh, over the diplomatic radio to the Foreign Office in London and then the office informed the Times. And the news was received around early evening on the 1st of June and the Queen was given the message in one of her red dispatch boxes and the paper carried the scoop in its first edition the next morning and the BBC broadcast the news to the world. So this was a, it was a sensational coup because there were a lot of rivals in the field trying to get the, their hands mm. on the story but nobody had the backup that, that Jan had in terms of the Sherpas and the, the, the helpers and so forth and the porters. Um, so it was, it, that, that really made her name more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, and you, you quote uh, from her writing in the book, soon I could not see a thing for the steam so I pushed the goggles up from my eyes and just as I recovered from the sudden dazzle of the snow I, I caught sight of George Lowe leading the party down the hill he was raising his arm and waving as he walked it was thumbs up Everest was climbed really a wonderful sense of the, the, the adventure and the daring do of that but of course she had been an intelligence officer previous to that as well well, yes, she had had uh, war service um, or service post-war rather from about 1946 with the Lancers and had uh, served in Venice and Trieste, uh, that part of northern Italy, and then later in Palestine. Um, and one of her jobs in in Venice was to uh, escort the generals and the officers in charge around the canalways. Mm. And this was a, a, a brilliant job to have at that age. And this is really what um, interested her in, in Venice. And eventually, she went on to write about it, of course, and Trieste as well. So those were her first, um, you know, experiences mm. of both those cities and they played such an important part in her later writing. And there's there's a kind of a almost hyper-masculinity about that world in some ways. There was certainly a hyper-masculinity about the, the climbing of Everest when you think about it just as a physical feat. Uh, you could even argue, and I think you argue in the book, that there was something about the public school system which she would have been part of um, as a child, yes. that there was a kind of a hyper-masculinity within that world as well. At what point or how early or how soon were questions of gender already in the mind of Jan Morris? Well, from a very young age, actually, from the age of about three or four, uh, she felt that she'd been born into the wrong gender. And, um, you know, that that was as early as, as that stage, actually, but didn't do anything about it. She... Um, 
got married and had five children. Uh, one of the children died in infancy uh, and the four other children are, are surviving. They're all adults now, of course. Mm. But it was from an early age. And then, you know, over the years, uh, through the 40s and the late 40s and the 50s, she would speak to some people about being in the wrong gender and how she was going to change. And it wasn't a secret in a sense. And um, it is uh, accepted that um, her partner, Elizabeth, knew that she wanted to go through this. But um, nevertheless, they got married and, as I said, had, had children. And uh, Elizabeth, uh, undeniably, she was affected by the transition, but she seemed to accept it. And, um, you know, she stuck with her. And the, they had to get a divorce uh, when Jan came back. She went to Casablanca for the operation. When she came back, they divorced because you had to divorce in those days. But they got back together again and uh, lived as, uh, I think the term was sister-in-law. And uh, then they remarried in 2008. Yeah, and, and, and that was became possible because of the same-sex marriage uh, laws changing. Yes, that's, and that's and, and, and yes, it is wonderful yes. that, that that marriage was reinstated because it seems as if both of them wanted that that to be the case. Was it difficult on the... And you touch on this in the book, on the family, uh, particularly on Elizabeth and on the, the, the children. How did they accept well, no it one, or how did they deal with it? Well, n- no one really um, would knew what Elizabeth went through, but her daughter Suki uh, told me, because I interviewed uh, Mm. a couple of the children, and uh, she said, "I, I cannot imagine what my mother must have gone through during and after the transition or what it might have been like for her. But when she asked her why she didn't leave, she said that she married in the eyes of God and this was the reason that she stayed. Um, she was quite a religious person, I think, and that was important in those days. And her mother knew early on, as I said, that Jan felt she was in the wrong body, but she mm. didn't think that anything could be done about it. Um, but obviously for the children, you know, Suki, for example, was only eight years of age, and she said that her parents had sat her down and told her what was going to happen, and she accepted this. Mm. And as children, she said, we were, we were brought up to do that and just to do what we were told and to call Daddy Jan. And after that, Jan refused to discuss it. And there was no help. Yeah. This is, we're talking 50 years ago. There was no help offered to them at all. And I think for Suki, one of the hardest things was, was working out what to tell people. Um, but she didn't have any really any falling out or argument yeah. with Jan. She found her just a very complex and multifaceted person. Although there is, was. I think you, you point out as well that one of the children has never spoken publicly about the, the, the transition as well. But but finally, if I could, Paul, um, the, the writing post-transition, do we, is it the same writer? Do we see the same writer? Had things changed? Or was there an attitude possibly to her writing that changed more than the writing itself? There's not much difference, Sean, in the writing styles. Uh, a lot of critics have, um, you know, uh, explored this in great detail. Uh, it was maybe a little bit more rosy, and in the eyes of some critics, I think it began to cloy a little bit. But you know, I think it's worth remembering that for most writers, as they get older, their style changes mm. anyway. Um, Jan herself said that uh, some of the books that she wrote in the 60s, she wouldn't have written in the 80s or 90s because there's a different sensibility or sensitivity about them. And uh, that was one of the things that she highlighted. But th- there wasn't a vast change. I don't think the general view was that, you know, not, not, not a huge change, really. And um, 
as I said, just a little bit more rosy, perhaps. Yeah. Well, listen, it, it makes for a fascinating read and we've only scraped the surface of it. Uh, Conundrum, the title of one of John Morris's books, and it, that there's a sense of that within your own book as well. And the title that you've chosen, Paul, uh, Life from Both Sides, John Morris, Life from Both Sides, a biography by Paul Clements. Coming up Friday week, October the 21st, we will be live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera for Arena's RTE Short Story Special. We'll gather with the judges uh, for this year's RTE Short Story Competition, Lisa McInerney, Ferdia McConnell and uh, Elish Nikhivna. Uh, and all 10 shortlisted writers for live music as well and extracts from the stories in live performance. Insights into the art of the short story and to hear who's won the big prizes, including the top prize of €5,000. And if you'd like to read the stories, they're all available right now on rte.ie forward slash culture. They will be broadcast here on RT Radio 1 at 11.20 every night as part of Late Date with Cahill Murray starting tonight with Scrappage by Angela Flannery. And uh, Angela Flannery joins me on the phone, uh, or joins us right now. Uh, Angela, Scrappage, first of all, this is a story about memory and about loss. The narrator is talking about um, cleaning up the parents' home after both parents have now died. Where did the idea come from or why did you want to write about this particular aspect of family life? Uh, it's probably a life stage that I'm at, Sean. Um, I think an awful lot of people I know that, you know, they are at that stage where their parents are passing on. Um, but aside from that, I always in the back of my mind had sort of a story about a skip in my head because I've been fascinated by them for a long time. You know, I can't really walk past a skip without looking into it and seeing if there's anything, first of all, worth taking out. But also I notice because I pay so much attention to them, the different variety of things you can tell somebody's story from. them. You can tell when someone is moving on to a new home and it's a new beginning. But I think very sadly, you can also tell, you know, when someone is clearing out a family home and it really does signify an end. And so that's what this story is about, as you say, two sisters who have to clear out the family home after the death of their mother and one of them wants to do it and uh, the other one who's been caring for the mother wants to stay there so the one who who wants to do it orders a skip yeah and um and it's cleared out by the other sister yeah, yeah. and there's a, there's a bit of a problem initially with the skip coming and the, the cars in the way they can't get the skip down and there's all sorts of problems about what will they do now so it has to be rescheduled let's have a listen to a section of the story which deals with uh, that difficulty around rescheduling the skip. And the reader here is Jane Brennan. The skip company wants to charge a rescheduling fee. The woman on the phone is adamant. They can't be sending drivers out with skips and nowhere to put them. I tell her my mother died and that's why the car seized up. Oh, she says, and puts me on hold. Gabriel's oboe ululates down the phone line. Is waste removal always this sorrowful? Or did she choose the music just for me, like a request? I'm constructing objections in my head when the woman comes back and tells me she's going to prioritise our order. We'll send a skip as soon as the car is towed, she says. And the rescheduling fee? She's sorry for my troubles, but there's nothing she can do about that. In the back garden, I bash a kitchen chair off a breeze block wall until the frame cracks and splinters. Pinning the carcass to the ground with my foot, I pull the legs off one by one. It feels magnificent. 
That's Jane Brennan reading from Angela Flannery's story A Scrappage, which is one of the 10 short, short listed stories for this year's RT Short Story Competition. And Angela speaking with me this evening. What did Gabriel's oboe ever do to you? Have you had it ululating down the phone <laughs> at you in various situations, <laughs> Angela? Yeah, I'm not very patient on the phone. You know, I don't really suffer from rage anywhere apart from on the phone. So I had to get that bit in, yeah. <laughs> So you've you've exercised the difficulties <laughs> that Gabriel Zobo and 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 phone music has has caused uh, for you, but it, you get a sense because there's there's great humour in the story, Angela. Obviously, you know the kind of the, the, the there's a, a dynamic between the two sisters, but it's an incredibly touching and and difficult situation. I mean, at one point the, the character goes around looking at the walls and can remember the pictures on the wall, and it brings us through what seemed like a very happy family life. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted that in the story. I wanted them to be a happy family. And now suddenly they've kind of come to this conflict where they have to, they strongly disagree over something, you know. And um, yeah, it was important to me, you know, that there were no villains in it, that, you know, they're all, everyone's on each other's nerves and people really are not in their best behaviour. Um, you know, they're picking at each other. But in the end, ultimately, I wanted a story where the loyalty between siblings and, you know, the, yeah, I suppose the happy memory of their father in particular, um, you know, that 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 kind of is the is the feeling that you're left with. But yeah, it's funny about humour, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and where we say, you know, that humour and the tears of a clown and all of that. And I kind of mm. think, you know, humour actually is sadness. You know, that you know when people are being so humorous that the situation is 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 that bad that there's nothing that you can do about it. So to me, I kind of equate humour, dark humour and sadness at this point. And I think there's a lot of it in my writing. And uh, the writing of short stories, I mean, you're not, this isn't the first time that you've been shortlisted. Mm. Um, you were shortlisted for the Francis McManus short story competition uh, for Kamikaze. Uh, mm. When was that and how, how different a story was that? Um, that was in 2018 and um, that was a very different story. I mean, you know, it's set in New York, but the pace of it is, is very different. And I was reading a lot of Raymond Chandler at the time. And I look back now at that story and I think, my God, the pace of it and the kind of, you know, how whip smart the character is, that it really is almost reads like Philip Marlowe. So you can be so heavily influenced without realising it, even though it was completely, you know, absolutely nothing like a noir or detective novel, nothing like that. But Kamikaze actually went on to become one of the chapters in my debut novel that was published in June um, the character in that became one of the main characters so it did evolve into something much bigger And did you, that's interesting because I was going to ask you about the difference between the, the writing of short stories and the writing of novels for you, at what point did you realise that that Kamikaze, I mean did, did, did you literally lift the short story and it becomes a chapter or did you have to jiggle things around a little bit for it to fit into the overall shape of the novel? No, it's redrafted. I think it's nearly twice as long mm. and certainly other characters are in it that wouldn't have been in it, you know, that are in the novel. They're in the chapter that is still called Kamikaze in the Amusements, but um, which is, sorry, which is the name of my novel. Um, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it, it, it's very, very different. But I find that 
And a lot of, I think, novelists say this, that, you know, their novel initially starts out as a short story or a character from a short story will end up in a novel. And that happens to me all the time. And there are many, many writers like that. I mean, Donald Ryan, probably the most, you know, famous exponent of that in Ireland. Elizabeth Strout does it. And it's this sort of, you know, not being able to let go of your characters. And I definitely suffer from attachment issues or maybe I benefit from them, but I'm very attached to my characters. So they keep recurring. And I felt it was a real, you know, Kamikaze and I mean the Francis McMahon mm. has given me so much confidence about that character but I wasn't sure who she was I actually thought that she was the main character in the novel and then I realised no she's not she's her best friend from when she was a child oh, right. which was so exciting you know the mystery of how it all comes about so I, you know I'm very thankful to the Francis McManus for, um, for that, <laughs> for that. Um, And uh, Yvette who is the sister we, we have the narrator I don't think we learned the narrator's name I can't remember No, no. no we don't uh, we, no. we have the narrator and, and you heard it uh, read there by Jane Brennan and, and then you have Yvette is the sister and John Paul is her husband. Any one of those characters um, knocking at your door saying, I, I want another little outing, please, in the sun? Yeah, I think John Paul is stuck in my head, actually. I thought he might be. He, yeah, I think it's I think it's his short, hairy fingers. I just can't get the visual out of my head. Yeah, I think John Paul is in my head. And I think the dad as well. The two male characters in it are in, in and the dad passed away years ago. They're both in my head, definitely. Yeah. And and the short story as as a form then, what does it give to you, uh, Angela, as a writer? I just feel, I don't know whether it's my background in journalism and I was used to writing short form, but it came very naturally to me when I started writing to kind of go, right, I'll try and write short stories. But I'd read, you know, I'd read so many of them. My favourite writers are short story writers, you know, Carver, Shirley Jackson, and like, you know, to talk about the Americans, William Trevor, an absolute favourite, Kevin Barry, you know, the people I admire um, as writers all write short stories. And the novels that I liked reading were kind of episodic and composite novels. Mm. So it just is something I feel a real natural affinity to as a reader and then also as a writer. And, you know, I am... yeah, I just love being able to pick it up. I mean, at the moment yeah. I'm reading Roddy Doyle's collection of short stories, you know, that is set in the pandemic and um, it's great. It's suddenly making sense of the pandemic okay. to me. And I read Elizabeth Stride's <laughs> new book over the weekend, which is pandemic. But again, it's episodic. Right. So I think that that's just, you know, when you kind of find your voice and you find your You're medium, right. there's just something about that form well, uh, that I adore. I just love it. Uh, congratulations on the shortlisting at any rate, Angela, and best of luck in the, in the final moments, which, as I say, we'll be dealing with on Friday the 21st of October and you can hear the I'm sure you'll be tuning in tonight to Late Date with Cahill Murray 11.20 here on RT Radio 1 uh, you'll be hearing all 10 stories from the shortlist over the coming fortnight and it starts tonight with Angela Flannery's story Scrappage um, one of the 10 shortlisted stories from this year's RT short story competition in honour of Francis McManus Arena then the short story special live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary Friday the 21st of October Friday week that is if you'd like to come along to that tickets are now on sale at paviliontheatre.ie you'll also find a link of where to buy those tickets on the RTE short story section of the rte.ie culture website where you can read all 10 shortlisted stories right now rte.ie forward slash culture